0: Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yi An Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Koolabar Capital.
1: And Yi is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Koolabar Capital.
0: So Chris, why don't you start by talking to us about what happened in April to credit spreads and the performance across Koolabar's portfolios?
1: Yeah, sure, Yi. So we kind of think of our portfolios as a capital structure. So I'll talk about senior bonds, subordinated bonds, and hybrids. And um, April very much played out as we had projected over February and March. We had positioned the portfolio in late February and March to really um, quite ruthlessly capitalise on the massive blood and spreads. And we were forecasting very sharp mean reversion in spreads based on QE and a bunch of other factors we'll talk about later, you know, the peak in uh, new COVID-19 infections and so forth. And that's very much what we saw in April, uh, which generated record returns across all of our portfolios, portfolios more or less. So we saw double A minus rated senior bonds issued by the major banks. Their credit spreads went from 1.75% above the bank bill swap rate to around 77 or 0.77% over. So roughly speaking, a uh, circa 100 basis point uh, reduction in spreads. 98 basis points to be precise. In the tier two subordinated bond market, we saw credit spreads compress from 400 over bank bills to 260. So yeah, a 140 basis point compression in spreads. And in the hybrid market, we saw five year major bank spreads compress from 841 over to 417 over. So we're talking about a very large 424 basis point compression in spreads. I should stress the tier two bonds I'm talking about are also major bank bonds, so five year triple B plus bonds, and those hybrids are also rated triple B minus. In terms of capital gains, if you were able to pick the wides in spreads in March, you really got quite amazing returns through to early May. And we'd actually advised a few clients to consider this opportunity and had more than $100 million that we were allocated at those wides in March by three investors in particular who I'll call Adonis, Crokey, and The Jedi. And so, for example, on their investments in hybrids, they've got capital gains of 19 to 20% before any yield or coupon. And then um, they've also done very well on senior and subordinate bonds. So before yield, the Tier 2 bonds have realized capital gains of... percent and the senior bonds have captured capital gains of uh, 4.41 percent based on that spread compression in terms of our portfolios we run a bunch of strategies uh you know cash plus cash plus plus strategies we run an active composite bond strategy uh we run beta shares hbrd active etf product Uh, we run something called the longshore credit fund and a significant number of insta mandates that are broadly similar in the month of April, our more aggressive strategies returned between 5 and 5.9%, which was their best month on record. HBRD was up about 3.5% in the month net of fees. I should mention those more aggressive strategies that did 5 to 5.9%, uh, five post fees, about 5.9% pre fees And then in the Cash Plus and Cash Plus Plus universe, we did about 1.1% um, you know, to 1.4% in the month net of fees. We also reduced our exit spreads in uh, April, so down to 0.05% and to 0.10% for the cash plus strategies and also the long short fund was down to 0.10%. That was on the 6th of April. So if you look at something called an exit net asset value for the public funds, you'll see much bigger returns because of the reduction in the exit spread. So you'll see returns in the order of more like 5.6% net of fees for the long short fund. And the cash plus plus products will be more like one and a half to 2% net of fees. Uh, that's just an artifact of the change in the exit spread. It's not actually anything to do with the return. So it was a good month that sort of broadly tracked as we had hoped.
0: So Chris... Kulabar has taken a very unusual approach to analysing COVID-19. Can you talk us through where your head was at in January and how your analysis developed over time?
1: Yeah, sure, Yingers. We took a pretty evidentiary and empirical approach. I think that's the first point. In January, we were very, very focused on what the data was telling us. And we now know that, with the benefit of hindsight, that it was absolutely possible to contain the virus. So that was one path that was available to China at the time. Uh, We have seen very successful containment in Taiwan, Hong Kong, Australia and New Zealand, amongst others. Unfortunately, the Chinese weren't successful. We didn't know this at the time. They had advised the world, I think, and through to the 20th of January, that there was no evidence of human to human transmission. And the World Health Organization reiterated those claims, so they advised the rest of the world that this was not infectious on that basis, uh, which ultimately proved to be totally wrong. And I think it was frankly a lie because I'm sure the Chinese knew by the end of December there were human-to-human transmissions and Taiwan had submitted a white paper to the WHO making that claim in that month. China was also very slow to shut down Wuhan. That didn't happen until the 23rd of Jan, and then it kept its borders open, allowing thousands of Chinese to travel around the world during Chinese New Year. So I don't think it was really possible to know on the basis of public information that this was going to be a pandemic in January. Nonetheless, we built real-time data science systems that tracked every infection and fatality for every state and country globally, and then analysed the trajectory of the virus. And we were trying to understand when we thought it would likely become a pandemic. And we figured that out in February and then spent a lot of time telegraphing that information or communicating with the government, um, the Prime Minister, the Treasurer, the RBA and APRA, basically advising them that this, firstly, was clearly a global pandemic. And I don't think that was an especially uh, original view at that point. But what was, I think, somewhat novel was the corollary that markets wouldn't be able to price the pandemic. We had a very firm conviction around that in February. And in February, we told the government that we felt that because of the huge information asymmetries around the virus and its impact on the global economy, we would see outright market failures and liquidity and then solvency crises. So we're absolutely convinced of that in February, which was not, I think, a consensus view. In fact, you know, the RBA pretty clearly disagreed with us and was advising the public in March that this was not a liquidity crisis, that it wasn't like the GFC and so on. We also advised policymakers that we felt that as a result of a kind of unprecedented liquidity insolvency shock it was imperative that they immediately launch liquidity and quantitative easing operations to provide an economic and general uh, stimulatory bridge for financial markets and businesses between that point in time and the ultimate point when uh, vaccines were widely available. And we actually, I think, coined that term in February, this notion that the RBA thereafter started talking about uh, in the second half of March of building an economic bridge to vaccines. We got the first half of March basically wrong insofar as I was convinced that we would see expansive QE and liquidity support in the first week or two of March. And we were surprised by how slow the central banks were to understand what we had intuited. The RBA cut, the Fed cut, but there wasn't any QE. And in fact, the Fed ruled out QE when they first cut. And then the Bank of England and the ECB met in mid-March and really underwhelmed. The BOE didn't do QE, uh, the ECB uh, didn't cut, and it only modestly increased its existing QE. Nonetheless, by the 19th of March, the RBA was launching very aggressive QE operations, as was the Treasury buying AAA-rated RMBS. The RBA was buying government bonds and lending banks three-year money at a cost of just 0.25%. And we really saw the QE and fiscal policy bazookas launched with incredible gusto. Ultimately, by the end of March, so we got there in the end. And I think most importantly for our portfolios, QE absolutely and emphatically had the impact we expected which was to really drive a normalisation in the spreads on bonds issued by, in particular, government guaranteed banks. We also, in March, published some highly proprietary forecasting models for COVID-19 that we had been developing over time. And um, we published a paper on that that's available on our website or the SSRN um, academic research site. And we had this very contrarian view in March that the peak in new infections would be in early April in Australia, the US and Europe. Now, at that time, the epidemiologists were advising the government here in Australia that the peak might not be for you know many, many months, more like June, July. And the consensus was that this would be very, very hard to contain and, and the peak again globally would be months away. So we had a firm conviction that that was wrong. That forecasting model was an empirical model, I think, The mistake the epidemiologists made was they were focused on theoretical models, whereas our systems were leveraging the observed trajectory in the virus infection rate and then also harnessing insights from countries that were ahead of the curve, ahead of the rest of the world, like China, South Korea, and then thereafter, Italy, in terms of the impact of their containment strategies on uh, new infections. And that's kind of what gave us the early April insight. And we got a lot of interest in the forecast. I think a lot of people focused on them. I think we were pretty much one of the few asset managers globally that published forecasts for COVID-19. Bloomberg, I think, wrote an article on it. That was a key motivator of our willingness to fade uh, the extreme dislocations we had seen in March and our preparedness to put our money where our mouths were. So specifically, if you look at our... Portfolio posture, we net sold $417 million of bonds in January. So in January, we were de risking, lifting our weighted average credit rating to the AA band, lifting our cash, delevering if we use leverage. And we also sold all of our corporate bonds. We only had two um, a Coles bond and a Seek bond. We sold those in january and then over late february and mostly in march we bought net bought 942 million dollars of bonds and then we took profits in april gross selling 668 million net selling about 210 million over the first four months whilst corporate bond markets were plagued with illiquidity we focus on highly liquid assets and so we had absolutely no problems with liquidity in fact we bought. And sold about $5.5 billion of bonds over the first four months. And over February and March, we bought and sold, um, I'm still getting the numbers here, 2.3, 2.4, about $2.5 billion of bonds, 2.5 billion over February and March. In terms of the number of trades, we executed about 4,760. Over those first four months, I think that whilst most of the market was rushing for the exits in February and March and trying to sell, we were buying. Again, most of that buying in March, uh, we bought about 800 million bucks net in March, um, and then started taking profits uh, in April.
0: So Chris, how big were the moves in spreads in March in a historical context?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting question, here, is um, the, the, the spread moves were large, incredibly large. Um, so basically we saw major bank senior spreads blow out from before the crisis, They were sitting at 77 over bills, bank bills, sorry, 69 over bank bills, and they blew out to 175 over. In tier two subordinated bonds, spreads increased from 160 over bills to 400. And then in five-year major bank hybrids, spreads moved from 273 to 841. And we'd never seen moves that fast before. So the peak in major bank hybrid spreads in uh, the GFC was 592 over. And in March 2020, they blew out to 841 over. In 2015-16, hybrid spreads increased to 573 over. But if you look at a chart of it Ying it's just a straight line. So in the GFC, it took years for spreads to increase to the levels they got to, whereas this was a much more truncated and high-velocity shock. And that also informed our view that there'd be very rapid um, mean reversion. In Tier 2, Major bank sub debt. The peak in spreads at around 400 was much wider than the 312 over in 1516, and the 301 over in 0809. The moves in senior markets were quite similar. At 175 over, uh, the peak was you know, broadly in line with the circa 200 uh, over level we saw uh, in the GFC. The exact levels are hard to know because it really depends on where the individual trade's printed and that data isn't always publicly disclosed.
0: So if you look at the subsequent mean reversion, what were the best trades?
1: Yeah, the best trades were clearly, I think, in hybrids. And that was what we were arguing in March. We certainly, when we saw the 841 uh, basis point level, you know, we went limit long hybrids. So I think we net bought about $300 million of hybrids in March, or between $250 and $300. And that was, um, I think, partly driven that level by some incorrect reporting around a NAB hybrid. NAB repaid the hybrid holders in March, $1.34 billion. This is NAB PC. They bought it back, the hybrid. And then they used the structure of a hybrid to raise 750 mil of additional equity. And that had nothing to do with the hybrid holders. But there was an article in the Australian saying that they'd been bailed into equity, which was totally wrong. And on that day, the market fell 6 to 7%. The biggest prior um, one-day drop in hybrids had been around 3 to 4%. But it had fully recovered that drawdown a few days later once people realised the reports were wrong. It's very interesting. We've seen the banks aggressively repay all their hybrids during this uh, shock. So Macquarie, interestingly, repaid two hybrids over uh, March, April, May, worth about $800 million. NAB repaid NAB PC, which was worth $1.34 billion. Uh, We've seen BOQ repay a 150 mil hybrid in May. In addition to that, there's obviously been, you know, the banks have been building their equity buffers by deferring dividends or not, or, sorry, significantly reducing their dividends. And that's a huge net transfer of wealth to creditors, bondholders and hybrid holders. So they've of course continued servicing all the coupons and the hybrids. And I don't think there's any expectation that won't happen. But at the same time, they're building their equity buffers. So they are not paying dividends to delever their balance sheets, to prepare for future risks, um, and as they maintain those very high capital ratios, that directly reduces the default risk on hybrids. So, hybrids are converted. Normal bank hybrids are converted into bank shares if their equity ratios fall to five point one percent. And most of the banks are sitting on circa eleven percent levels. And by not paying dividends and building that buffer, they are directly reducing the distance to default on hybrids. Another interesting thing was just the liquidity in the hybrid market. So we saw massive trading, which was very, very different to what we saw in the corporate bond market where there was total illiquidity. In particular, the five-day rolling sum of trades on the ASX had averaged about $200 million every five days in respective ASX hybrids. And that increased to almost $500 million traded every five days in March. And we certainly saw individual days where up to 120 to 130 mil would trade. So really strong volumes that were very, very, very encouraging and obviously gave us tons of opportunity to go out there and pick up very, very cheap assets that uh, subsequently mean reverted. The other interesting trade was the major bank senior bond trade with the banks raising additional equity capital and with the availability of a load, uh, enormous amount of funding from the RBA. So the RBA is providing banks with two forms of funding. The first is through um, something known as term repo, which are basically kind of three month, six month, you know, nine month, 12 month loans to the banks or collateral or assets that the banks post with the RBA. And that's very, very cheap, you know, well below 1%. And the banks have raised very large volumes of funding, cheap rates with the RBA through the repo market. The more interesting development is what is called the Term Funding Facility. And the RBA, as I mentioned earlier, is lending to the banks at a, an interest rate of just 0.25% for three-year money. Um, they announced it on the 19th of March, the day before, it would have cost the banks about 2% to raise three year funding in the senior bond market. So very cheap money. And as a result of that, you know, the banks are unlikely to issue senior bonds for a very long time. And we're seeing basically a scarcity bid. And we've seen senior spreads, as I mentioned, compress from 175 over to, you know, now around the mid 70 level, as that AA A minus rated paper is in very, very high demand.
0: You alluded to these before, but did many clients try and capitalise on these opportunities?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. Um, we've had net inflows over this period. So we're running more money today than we did you know, in January, which has been terrific. Obviously, across the industry, we've heard you know, a lot about redemptions from fixed income funds. I think as uh, investors have switched from bonds to equities, that's been one driver. Obviously, the super fund withdrawals that the government has allowed has been another driver. And then... I think that there's definitely some concern that portfolios were not as liquid as people have assumed. So a lot of investment-grade fixed income portfolios that people thought were liquid, that had daily liquidity, have frozen up and have not had liquidity at all. Or if you wanted liquidity, you would have had to pay you know, 5% to 10% to exit those portfolios. It's certainly true that the valuations of corporate bonds, I think, were materially overstated in March probably by about three percentage points across the board. And we've definitely seen in our own sort of travels, the real bid in the market, absolutely miles below where people are officially reporting valuations. I saw actually an example of this today where, you know, the credit spreads that people think should apply to certain bonds, investment grade bonds, hundred hundreds of basis points higher than the credit spreads that people are using to revalue their Portfolios. So we, um, within our own books, HBRD, the active hybrid ETF products, which you know really performed brilliantly in March, was only down minus 4.5% in March, and you know, at the same time, the equity market fell 21% in March. Bank stocks fell closer to 40% in March. So the beta to equities and bank stocks was very very low in HBRD. The overall ASX hybrids index also fell 6.3% in March, so we massively outperformed that. But within that portfolio, we did see some net redemptions, nothing significant, but at least, you know, 10 or 20 million as folks, I guess, were spooked by what was happening overall. But those redemptions, um, certainly based on the data we have available to us now, were probably the worst time in any, at any point in recorded Australian investment history to exit the ASX hybrid market. And that market has rallied back very strongly As I said, HBRD was up about 3.5% in April, and it's been up uh, nicely in May as well. Uh, And we've seen some interesting new issues come to market um, that have presented some really good opportunities.
0: And Chris, we've seen Woolworths and Macquarie reopen the OZC corporate bond and hybrid markets. What did you think about those deals?
1: Yeah, uh, Yingers, the Woolworths and Macquarie issues have been interesting as you say, they've they've really opened up the corporate bond market. In the case of Woolworths and the hybrid market, in respect of Macquarie, Macquarie is a pretty easy one, uh, incredibly cheap. And they have offered a spread of 470 over bills. They could have easily raised that money at a spread spread of 400 over bills. Um, They only issued $500 million. As I understand, the entire book was about almost $2 billion, a massive demand. And I expect that to perform well. We um, have allocated capital to the Macquarie hybrid um, because it appeared to be so cheap. And I think Macquarie were right to offer a handsome concession because they wanted to um, get the deal done quickly. It's listing on the ASX quickly. They had previously had a deal ready to roll in March as a NAP and both deals were poor. So this was really about getting it done expeditiously. And I think you know it was a, a prudent approach and... Macquarie was very, very keen to ensure retail investors were rewarded for their patience and for supporting Macquarie with a handsome concession. Woolworths, on the other hand, has taken more or less the opposite approach. Um, So quite surprising, they've printed a billion dollars across a five-year bond and a 10-year bond. They have a lot of debt maturing in the next year, so they had to do this. I think over two, two and a quarter billion of debt maturing. And we know that There's been no turnover. There's been no trading in Aussie corporate bonds. The prices are inflated. The spreads are too tight. And we really needed a a landmark deal to come with a handsome concession, open up the market and really perform very, very strongly. And I don't think you're going to see that happen with Woolworths. So when we thought, thought about that issue, it's a triple B rated issue. So it's quite a low credit rating. And when we ran our multi-factor Aussie model over that, we had fair value with no new issue concession all, at all uh, at uh, 170 over bank bills. Now we would have expected a concession of you know, 25 to 50 bips. So really, I think you know, the smart money was expecting this thing to come with a two handle in front of it and you know, low to mid 200s. Uh, instead, they launched at 160 over, amazingly. So basically, a, a negative new issue concession. Somehow, they've attracted uh, a couple of billion dollars of bids and they've priced it, I think, at 145 over. So on our numbers, that would be a 25 basis point negative new issue concession. So I can't see that bond performing at all. We also have a global supermarkets valuation model that took 55 supermarket bonds from around the world and... Before any concession, that had a fair value at 216 over. So, again, not 145. We knew that Woolworths had a, a senior bond in the US outstanding that had less than one year to maturity. And that was trading back in Aussie dollar terms at 160 over. So, swap back to Aussie dollars, 160 over the bank bills, which very much validated kind of a low 200s level for a five year security. We can also look to the Euro market, Tesco. Another large supermarket operator had a 750 mil euro senior bond outstanding. Shorter dated security, only 4.1 years to maturity. And that was trading at 220 over um, swap when swap back to Aussie dollars. So again, sort of rationalise a low to mid 200 level for Woolworths. And that Tesco bond benefits from the ECB buying corporate bonds through its QE program, which the RBA is not doing. The Tesco bond does have a one-notch lower credit rating at triple B minus, but Woolworths and Tesco both have exactly the same anchor rating. So I think the market was confused because Woolworths has this very specialized green supermarkets bond that it had issued to ESG investors that trades. Like an ESG security, and because there's lots of ESG investors and there aren't many ESG bonds, these securities traded a super tight level. And I think investors who probably weren't very focused on due diligence and who probably don't value these bonds in any kind of sophisticated fashion were just using that green bond as the benchmark, because that had traded in the sort of 120 area for 2024 maturity. And so maybe that rationalised 145 over. But you know, I was pretty surprised. You know, the other bond issuers since the crisis people like Suncorp and BoQ that have done AAA rated bonds have all come to market with very reasonable concessions you know anywhere from 10 20 30 basis points and they have performed brilliantly those bonds and you know I kind of don't understand why would you buy a Woolworths triple B rated senior bond at 145 over for a 5 year tenor when you can buy a 4 year major bank triple B plus bonds that pay more than 100 basis points in additional interest each year. So they're kind of trading it closer to 260 over. This is precisely why I think the Aussie corporate bond market is so liquid. It's so badly priced that no one in their right mind would want to buy this stuff in any sort of stress event. So that's why I think you saw the corporate bid completely evaporate in March because everyone knew the Aussie credit market was you know, massively inflated.
0: And something that is on everyone's minds, Chris. Virtually all analysts are universally forecasting 10 to 20% falls in Aussie house prices, including all the major banks, UBS, AMP, Morgan Stanley, and SQM. You have a very different view. Do you want to talk to us about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So you know, our view is that house prices will flatline, or at uh, worst, fall by up to five percent over this little three to six month air pocket in growth. You're absolutely right. That is a very contrarian view. All the banks are saying 10 to 20%. SQMs at 30%. Shane Oliver, I think, is calling for 20% declines, but we're very comfortable with our projections. And we're also very comfortable with our forecasting track record, which has been demonstrably superior to yeah. the major banks, UBS, AMP, Morgan Stanley, and others. When we look at the debt servicing capacity of households, Interest repayments as a share of disposable income is at its lowest level ever. Uh, we think the unemployment rate will normalise to a 6 to 7% range. We think that the housing market has benefited from 75 to 150 basis points worth of mortgage rate cuts since mid last year. And that this is uh, materially expanded purchasing power. We think house prices will rise by a total of 20 to 30% over this cycle since their trough in mid-2019. We had about 11% of capital gains in the first 12 months, which uh, validated our forecasts that we revealed in April last year. We were the only analysts that had that view at that time. We've seen house prices perform precisely as we expected through this crisis. So nationally, prices, they rose in February, they rose in March... They rose again in April, and they've really been flatlining in May. There's a little bit of softness in Melbourne. So again, we expect them to move sideways, maybe deteriorate a little bit. But we think that once the economy normalises and people go back to work and the containment restrictions are relaxed, we will see the current housing cycle continue. So the boom will reassert itself. And so we're expecting another 10 to 20% of capital gains on top of what we've had since mid-2019. We do not think we'll have vast waves of foreselling. We think banks will uh, restructure mortgages to keep repayments at the same level. And if um, there is any foreselling, and obviously there will be some foreselling for some borrowers, we think that that will be easily met by the bid in the market. We also think Australia's destination over the next one to two years is going to be regarded globally as very attractive, given um, Scott Morrison's quite exceptional success in uh, containing the virus, flattening the curve, and all but eradicating it. So I'm quite bullish on housing. I think housing on an RV basis is going to look very attractive, and I have absolutely no compunction pulling out my 12-gauge shotgun and fairly uh, ruthlessly and relentlessly hunting me some housing bears.
0: And Chris, as we look ahead, what do you think are the big risks for markets that you're focusing on right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, the three big risks that we are concentrating on is cohesion in the European Union. There has been a um, German court ruling that has questioned the integrity of the ECB's QE program, and which could be very destabilizing for the EU at large. So we're monitoring that situation closely. Thus far, the ECB has more or less disregarded it and uh, has said that their powers supersede that of the German court in question and that the ruling has no ramifications for them directly. But for a whole bunch of complex nuances or complex reasons, this is a a destabilising event uh, and could set a precedent for other courts. It also could at the limit... Um, really restrict the ECB in its asset purchases to adhering to what is known as the capital key, which is um, basically the capital uh, that is contributed by member states. The problem with that is it limits the ECB's ability to help particular countries like Italy that may need more asset purchases than others. Another key risk that we're focused on is the prospect of a global sovereign debt crisis, obviously an explosion in public debt has arisen as a result of the massive fiscal stimulus programs. Our view at this point is we'll just get ongoing debt monetization by central banks, whereby the central banks will just print money and buy government bonds to fund the budget deficits that are being run around the world. And that's what we've seen here in Australia, albeit the The RBA would argue it's provided liquidity support to the government bond market, which in March did sort of become highly impaired. People often say that government bonds are very liquid and risk-free assets, but we saw Aussie government bonds, US government bonds, German government bonds, all in March suffer from extreme illiquidity, and that really forced the central banks to intervene and provide that liquidity backstop. The final thing we're focused on is a breakdown in China-U.S. relations and indeed China's relations with the rest of the world. This is a big one. We're very exercised by how President Xi will react to some of the hawkish and xenophobic rhetoric coming out of the U.S., particularly as Trump heads into the November election. Xi, we believe, has not managed his foreign affairs at all well, he has more or less isolated China at every turn with his actions since he's come to power. He has not been a reforming president. He has taken a strongman, traditional Han Chinese stance um, that is resulting in China really being marginalised from the rest of the world, much in the same way we saw the same thing happen to the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And my, my concern is around miscalculations. So, you know, whether that means China starting a conflict with Taiwan to capitalise on the fact that four US aircraft carriers are currently out of action due to COVID-19, our intelligence sources certainly suggest that China has become much more aggressive in Hong Kong. They've recently arrested 15 Democratic politicians and they have also recently signaled that the CCP no longer intends to respect the rule of law in Hong Kong or the judgments and resolutions of the uh, Hong Kong court system. And property rights and the rule of law was really the basis upon which the West could conduct business in Hong Kong so effectively for so many years. So that's a real concern that uh, you know the risk that China reacts to you know, very legitimate questions around its handling of the virus and the source of the virus with caustic, you know, uh, and bullying behaviours. And we've seen this recently here in Australia where. The prime minister said, "Listen, we need to understand how this pandemic started," which I think is a very, very you know, fair question for him to ask. And the reaction by the Chinese has been to basically hammer the Australian barley and beef markets in an attempt at explicit geopolitical intimidation. The problem, I think, for the Chinese is in the past that might have worked, where they could divide and conquer and exploit different financial conflicts that countries have with it around the world. But I think. In May 2020, the world is united in its frustration with uh, China's engagement with the West, its inability to behave like a good corporate actor, its systematic intellectual property theft program over a long period of time, and the artificial economic advantages China affords to its state-owned enterprises through cheap state-funded money, uh, which have then in turn become global champions through uh, undercutting private peers with those state subsidies, Huawei being, you know, a very good example. So that's a real concern that a Leninist Xi could actually embrace the idea of creating external crises to galvanise his internal support, um, be it through action against Taiwan, action in you know, kinetic conflicts with the US and the South China Sea, attempts to assert much greater control over Hong Kong, all of the above are potential sources of capital market volatility and discord. So yeah, it's uh it's a little grim. I think the final point we make, yin yi, is that we are projecting a what we're calling a, a VU shaped recovery or a vu shaped recovery where we get a much quicker than expected return to work as countries come out of containment more rapidly than had been planned. And that's all founded on our forecast for that early April peak in infections and the aggressive flattening of the curves. And um, and that's what we've seen here in Australia. In March, we wrote publicly that we thought the Prime Minister's six-month business hibernation strategy was the wrong plan for the problem and that we only needed a one to two-month lockdown followed by rapid a normalisation of activity. Uh, and the PM, to his immense credit, has swung 180 degrees and absolutely embraced that logic. Uh, and we are coming out of lockdown right now here in Australia um, over May and June. So that that is good. And that will mean we'll get an initial pop in activity and much more positive economic data as jobs and businesses come back online over in May, June, July. But I think thereafter, we're left with a world that is encumbered with much more private and public debt, and therefore a slower underlying growth profile. Um, and I think we'll have structurally higher unemployment in that 6 to 7% range because I think um, there are jobs that businesses will permanently shed. And there are also zombie businesses that are carrying too much leverage um, that are not profitable, like Virgin Airlines, that will be permanently affected by this, So, which will be put into administration and default on their debts. So as you know, Yin-yi, we have been calling for a wave of zombie defaults uh, and problems in the global high-yield bond market for 12 months. Uh, we told folks, if I can say, so pretty bravely and boldly last year that high-yield uh, listed investment trusts, so the LITs that were investing in high-yield bonds, would blow up in any stress event, and that's exactly what happened in March and April with all the high-profile, high-yield bond LITs on the ASX trading at massive discounts to their NTAs, you know, often 20 to 40% discounts, and inflicting up to 50% losses on investors. And they've all underperformed the equity market, which has just been really sad for the you know, relatively naive retail investors that were pushed into those products. Uh, we also saw the Virgin Airlines bond that was listed on the ASX in November, the same month that KKR did their LIT that blew up. That Virgin Airlines bond was a senior unsecured bond and it is now basically a zero. $325 million issue. Investors have lost all their money until the administration proceedings are resolved and they'll be lucky to get cents on the dollar, unfortunately, very sadly. So that's um, another area that we remain focused on. In particular, we are looking at uh, waves of investment grade but lowly rated bonds like the worst bond. So triple B rated bonds, we think that there will be waves of downgrades into the high yield category, which is the double B or lower category. Right now, there are more than US $1 trillion worth of triple B rated bonds that are on outlook with um, rating agencies for a downgrade. We also have a further US $200 billion of triple Bs that are on negative watch for a downgrade. The watch means um, a, downgrade, a downgrade is imminent, so likely in the short term. We've already seen a record of US $184 billion worth of fallen angels. So these are triple Bs that have gone into the high yield bucket in Q1 this year. That's 2.1 times larger than the value of fallen angels in the GFC. And we are seeing a massive increase in high yield defaults. On our measures, high yield defaults are already above the previous peak in 15, 16 and are heading towards GFC levels. We kind of are sympathetic to Goldman Sachs' forecast that uh, in its base case, it sees, it sees high-yield defaults getting back to um, 2009 levels, around 13% of all bonds. So we think there's much more pain to come in that high-yield market and in that, that mid-market where, you know, the businesses are not too big to fail and they're not too small to matter. Related to that, we're also very worried about the commercial property market. We're very negative on office properties. We think there's a permanent reduction in demand and rents for office property as a result of what we're calling the great virus crisis, the GVC. We think many SMEs will move to remote working models. And unfortunately, a lot of these commercial property trusts have funded themselves by issuing bonds. And there's just absolutely no bid in the market for commercial property issued bonds which again, sadly, many fixed income portfolios in Australia are chocker block full of. So the same principle, I think, applies to retail property, the shopping centres and you know, related retail real estate. As we move to more digitised consumption, uh, so more online consumption, I think they will suffer from uh, secular uh, and protracted levels of reduced Uh, demand, which is is a worry for both commercial property valuations, which you would have to think are are going to come down over time. They clearly weren't marking to market in March, the full uh, reductions in commercial property values that had taken place based on our analysis of um, that sector. And at the same time, you will see loan to value ratios increase because the debt levels will stay the same. The commercial property values are plummeting. And so LBRs are increasing, which could lead to covenant breaches and um, so on. So that's a a sector that we are extremely aware of. We've never invested in any REIT or office or commercial or retail property trust bonds ever, precisely because as the RBA is um, fond of reminding people, commercial property debt is the biggest source of bank crises in Australia. In 1991, commercial property debt almost uh, killed ANZ and Westpac and we've never had that uh, exposure.
0: And Chris, where do you see credit spreads going? Yeah, we, um,
1: I guess, constructive credit spreads, particularly given the unprecedented QE we've had from the RBA, Treasury here in Australia, but more importantly, in the US and Europe. We prefer highly rated issuers that are government guaranteed or implicitly government guaranteed, which is why we focused on the major banks. And, you know, on that sector, we can see five-year major bank hybrid spreads going back to their 2019 levels in the mid 200s, if not to the post-GFC tights around 200. In T2 subordinated debt, there is a lot of issuance coming, but yeah, you know, we think that spreads can compress back to where they got to in 2019, which is about 100 tight, 100 basis points tight of current levels. And in senior bond markets, we'll think we think we'll see a regime change because there just won't be any senior bond issuance at all. And so we think the major bank senior bonds will probably start trading with a five handle at some point. Uh, so down from you know, mid seventies right now into the fifties. They've gotten pretty close. In the last, I think, 12 months, they got down to about 59, and I can't see why we wouldn't re- retest those levels.
0: Thanks, Chris, and that's a wrap, guys. Thanks for tuning in, and apologies. It's been a while since the last episode. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us via email. That's info at And until next time, please stay safe. This podcast does not provide financial advice, it is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.